Good afternoon. It's Friday the 11th of June 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, and well, we're getting straight on with uh, the G7 and uh, Biden's visit, because Biden arrived yesterday, of course. It's a whistle-stop tour of international destinations over the next few days. Uh, and here we have them all uh, getting ready, uh, elbow bumping. Uh, it's a pity, well... Well, it's a pity they have to, isn't it? But look, they're look staying the, COVID safe. That's the main thing. This, this is the main Especially thing. Especially for Joe, because he's in the sort of vulnerable category. Apparently. Yes. There's Dr. Joe Biden there flanking uh, the president. And then Kerry uh, is there supporting Boris in his political career. Uh, but uh, if you're looking carefully, you'll see the markings on the ground. They've put some markings on the ground because clearly uh, Mrs. Biden isn't allowed to pass that red line. Uh, and Joe isn't allowed to pass that red line. It's a thicker red line for Joe because, you know, his eyesight isn't so good. So they need to put extra wide tape on the ground to, to cope with that. And uh, and Carrie isn't allowed to pass that red line. So uh, they have this well choreographed. Yeah, that's called blocking in theater. Uh, so it's keeping socially distanced. Good to see. Good to see. Uh, so, uh, you know, Biden arrived yesterday, got off the plane. He was actually awake. And f well, I'm not sure whether he was functioning, but more elbow bumping going on there. Uh, and uh, well, all kinds of really good stuff happened. There wasn't much socially, social distancing happening at this stage of the day, mind you, uh, although the, the black masks were out for some, but not all. Uh, but this... Uh, this could be titled Mr. Magoo Goes to Cornwall, I think. Anyway. It could be. Uh, but uh, we don't have to worry because the G7 is COVID-19 secure, they claim. They're doing daily lateral flow tests. They're wearing G7, specially created G7 face masks, uh, and they've got socially distanced meeting rooms. So how could it possibly go wrong? Uh, the unfortunate thing is, as far as I'm aware, uh, Patrick, Joe Biden was not required to quarantine for 10 days after he came into the country. How much is all this costing, by the way? What do you think? What do you think the bill is for all of this, the whole G7? Uh, well, with all this COVID, you've got military, you've got frigates there. We've seen missile launchers parked on the beach. What, how much is this costing? Uh, 5,000 police? No idea how much it's costing. 6,000 police, I believe. The, the security assessment, 70 million pounds. Uh, but the rest of it, no idea at this stage. And the bill, of course, just like Bilderberg, if you remember, there was no bill uh, appeared ever, actually, at the end of the day. So half a billion, a billion, probably around a billion or something like that. You think that. so? It could could well you be. Count all the military gear. Why don't they just do it on Zoom? It, it's going to be safe and it's going to save the taxpayers from all these countries' money. So just to have these guys come together in a COVID-safe environment somewhere in Cornwall, it, you have to drop a billion or two. It's just incredible. It gets bigger and bigger each year. It, it does. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's money well spent, Patrick, because we've got the new Atlantic Charter to look forward to. So the Atlantic Charter, of course, signed after the Second World War. It was signed in 1941, but it was designed to deal with the what happened came after the Second World War. Uh, and, uh, well, what did that do? Basically establish NATO and the United Nations? It did. It established a, uh, an Anglo-American post-World War II world order or an Anglo-American centric uh, world order, an liberal internationalist uh, world order. And of course, NATO, the Five Eyes Alliance uh, also came out of that, the intelligence uh, sharing agreements between the Five Eyes countries. So what are they doing here, Mike? It looks like it's the US, it's Britain, the transatlantic link trying to reestablish that, uh, that they're going to be setting the agenda for the world post-COVID? Is this what it's about? Well, we're going to go through what it's about in one second. But before we do that, let's just listen to what Boris had to say, uh, because he was very excited. In 1941, Churchill and Roosevelt faced the question of how the world could recover from the devastation of the Second World War, which was then going on. They came together to agree the Atlantic Charter, which forms the basis, not just of NATO, but of the United Nations as well. The world is a very different place in 2021, but the values we share are the same. And I'm pleased that today, with President Biden, we've agreed a new Atlantic Charter to address the greatest challenges of our time. Building back better from the pandemic, defending our democracy, stopping climate change, and protecting our security. So there you go. So, that, so look, there was some 
very romantic, soft music in the background. Uh, Boris nearly fluffed, fluffed his lines, but he, you know, a bit of fake acting there uh, going on. But let's just have a look and see because we'll recognize a lot of the language that's actually in this document. So it's got a number of uh, points. The first one is they're going to champion uh, transparency. Well, of course, they're going to champion transparency because uh, everything that they do is going to be completely transparent. In other words, we aren't going to get to see exactly whether we can see straight through it uh, because they're not really telling us exactly what they're doing. They're going to uphold the rule of law. Are they doing that already? I don't think they are. Uh, they're breaking the law as it suits them. They're going to support civil society, but we know what civil society is all about, Patrick. That's uh, NGOs uh, pushing policy. Consensus building. Consensus building. On, on behalf of government and on behalf of the sort of transnational corporate state, big pharma, etc. Yes, they're going to support independent media by making sure that truly independent media has no voice. Yeah, so they're going to subsidize establishment-approved, uh, what they call independent media, right? That is correct. And they're going to shut down everybody else. They're going to strengthen the institution's laws and norms that sustain international uh, cooperation. Now, we're going to come on to uh, this in a little bit because this really is talking about fusion and merging things together. Um, but uh, it goes on. They're going to guard against those that would undermine them. Uh, that would be anybody that's pushing an alternative narrative. Because they, because they wouldn't be doing anything nefarious or you know anything illegal, anything underhanded, anything violating international law. They would never do that, would they? No, they wouldn't. And so there's no need to have anybody that would undermine them that might uh, per perhaps call them out on these issues. But anyway, they're going to work through the rules-based international, and that should say order on the end. That, and that, so we make the rules, they said, we make the rules and everybody else can go get stuffed, basically. Absolutely, and they're gonna have open and fair trade between nations. This is quite interesting because, of course, all the language up until this point has been about free trade, oh, uh, but uh, free trade seems to have been dropped uh, for open and fair trade. Uh, they're gonna remain united behind the principles of sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the peaceful resolution of disputes. Uh, so more regime change then seems to be on the cards there. And also sovereignty doesn't really count uh, if it's being superseded by global governance, by global government, by the WHO. Uh, in that case, your sovereignty pretty much goes down the toilet. So, but it's good to make lip service because the, you know, the base likes the word sovereign. Sure, and it's, they're gonna impose interference through disinformation or other malign influences. So. So pro uh, offensive propaganda, they're, they're openly stating that. Yes, 100%. No one is allowed to counter the narrative at all. Uh, we resolve to harness and protect our innovative uh, edge in science and technology to support our shared security and deliver jobs at home. Uh, fourth Industrial Re Revolution is what they're talking about they're here. They're talking about delivering UBI yes. at home. Yes, universal basic income, which I guess you could call a job. With the amount of hoops that you have to jump through to keep your UBI. Well, indeed, possibly, yes. And to foster sustainable global development. So, uh, right. So that's uh, carbon zero, uh, COVID zero, et cetera, et cetera. That's sustainable development. Great reset language. Yes. Uh, and we go on. Uh, they affirm their, uh, their shared responsibility for maintaining their collective security and international stability and resilience against the full spectrum of modern threats, including cyber threats. This is a key one. We're going to come on to that, this in one second. Uh, collective security and international stability. Keep that in mind. Uh, and then they're going to they've also declared that they're nuclear deterrence to the defense of NATO uh, as long as there is uh, so, sorry, as long as there are nuclear weapons, NATO will remain a nuclear alliance. Uh, and of course, Biden is heading off to the NATO uh, co uh, conference uh, straight after the G7. Uh, uh, they say they're going to commit to building an inclusive, fair, climate-friendly, sustainable, rules-based global economy for the 21st century. Oof, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, it certainly is. Uh, and they are going to, uh, they're saying that the world has reached a critical point. It must act urgently and ambitiously to tackle the climate crisis, protect biodiversity and sustain nature. Uh, and they say that they recognize the catastrophic impact of health crises uh, and the global good in strengthening our collective defenses against health threats. So now this is interesting because this is the last clause on the uh, entire document. So which would imply that it sort of comes at the end of their priority list. But in fact, if we look at the announcements that the British government has made in the last day or so, it's quite the opposite. So let's have a look at this. Uh, this is all about pandemic preparedness. Um, so what they've announced is that they are setting up uh, the UK, within the auspices of the UK, 
Security Agency, an organization called the Center for Pandemic P Preparedness. This is part of the Atlantic, this new Atlantic uh, 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 charter. charter. Yes, thank you. Uh, and uh, this is apparently going to spearhead the UK's work to develop a global earning early warning system to detect new infectious disease threats. So the UK and the US governments have agreed a new landmark partnership between the UK Health Security Agency and the US National Centre for Epidemic Forecasting and Outbreak Analysis run by the CDC uh, to turbocharge efforts to combat global pandemics and emerging health threats uh, and by bolstering disease surveillance as well as genomic and variant sequencing capabilities worldwide. Uh, this partnership will accelerate the recovery from COVID-19 around the world and establish an early warning system to detect diseases, which in turn will help uh, low and middle income countries that do, uh, uh, sorry, that do not yet have the same capabilities. Um, and so there's going to be a brand new pathogen surveillance network, which is going to help save lives, Patrick. Uh, and it's going to protect health systems by spotting diseases before they spread. Um, maybe you could explain to me how you go about spotting a disease before it spreads. Uh, especially diseases that uh, where you don't show any symptoms, Mike. That's an even better trick, which they've uh, managed to do for the last 15 months. They said, well, you've got the disease, but you don't have symptoms, which in itself is kind of an oxymoron because you need symptoms to have a disease. But all of this has been redefined over the last uh, 15 months. Uh, in the new COVID era. Well, you know, what I'm going to say about the Atlantic Charter, Mike, uh, is that, you know, there's been a lot of complaints. You remember one of Trump's biggest talking points early on in his presidency was that NATO was basically obsolete. Yes. And so, and then they kind of, the the inner circle, the national security blob pulled Trump back in and said, no, 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 you, we need NATO. This is how the U.S. keeps its hand into the European glove, basically, and maneuvers everything. Uh, from economics to politics to geopolitics, yeah. energy policy, everything like that. And so Trump became more sort of pro-NATO after that, telling them to pay up, pay their fair shares. But a lot of talk has been going on in the U.S. that NATO has passed its sell-by date. So what Boris has done here, and Biden being the sort of compliant sort of septuagenarian puppet basically rolled in there just to say, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I remember when they signed the Atlantic Charter. And Joe does remember when they signed the Atlantic Charter in 1947 or whenever it was. So th this is basically to justify this giant military-industrial complex, giant security intelligence uh, surveillance-industrial complex. They now have, rather than the threat of communism or the threat of Islamic terror post 9/11, now you have the threat of microbes. You have the threat of quote viruses. And so this is what they've set up here: is this further centralization between the UK and the US working with the CDC. The problem here is when you get it, the, meth, the, the one lesson we should have learned over the last 15 months is centralization on quote public health can be an outright disaster if the powers that be get it wrong. And they did get it wrong. They're wrong on every single front. The CDC was wrong about everything from the beginning of this so-called pandemic. I think the UK public health uh, officials, agencies were as well, mm -hmm. and other countries too. So they all riffed off each other and the World Health Organization, and they got it wrong. And so the, it's a disaster. It cascaded through the whole economic, political, social systems. It's been a total failure. And now they're sort of posing like lockdowns worked. And uh, now the CDC is even rewriting, Mike. They're not counting mild COVID infections because they want to show that the vaccine is working. Mm. So to suppress the quote COVID numbers. So they use these PCR tests to ramp up all of this data on cases for the last 15 months. And now they're pulling it back. And uh, so this is what the, the Atlantic Charter is about, uh, uh, consolidating those gains of power that agencies in the UK and the United States have done over the last 15 months. It's been a massive power grab from these quote public health agencies and big pharma and the civil society organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that are really pumping the money uh, in, in subsidizing a lot of this to kickstart it. That's right. what's going on. Right. So that's absolutely right. Now, why did I go through that in so much detail? Because the language is very important. Integration. Integration, well, the British version of that is fusion. So let's just have a quick look with respect to pandemic preparedness, what they're doing to integrate 
uh, organizations and fuse them together. And then we'll have a look at defense because both of these issues are here. Um, so here is the uh, UK Health Security Agency. This is newly established in the last several months. Um, and uh, of course, what is this about? This is about bringing Public Health England, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, uh, the NHS Track and Trace, and now this new organisation, the Centre for, for Pandem Pandemic Preparedness, this all comes together into one single agency. Um, and uh, on top of that then, uh, we have another new organisation, um, which is the, uh, the new variant assessment programme. Okay, And all, every new variant comes along, this organisation, uh, decides that there's a new variant, gives it a name, and then sends this out to all the other countries of the world and tells them this is the new variant you've got to look out for. So they are supporting countries who make use of UK's genomic sequencing technology to spot new variants, providing them with technical support as well as upskilling their scientists uh, with training, but also giving them a narrative. And then when we get to defence um, on screen at the moment, uh, we've got defence integration going on because, of course, we, UK Colin's been talking about Britain and EU involvement in defence and integration, unification and defence union with respect to the EU. But this is becoming a transatlantic uh, situation. So uh, UK and US integration going on, along with uh, integration into Europe as well. That's the entire British Navy, isn't it, by uh, the way? Well, this, this more or, work, or less. Working British yes, Navy. Yes, this is the UK's so-called carrier strike group, CSG21. It's got nine ship, ships, it's got 32 aircraft, 3,700 personnel. It set sail a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, it's a seven-month maiden operational deployment, but it's integrated, or the integration, as they say in their uh, press release, of a U.S. destroyer and Marine Corps jets into that shows their intent to further improve interoperability, unification, all the usual buzzwords. So what we have, as you say here, is this massive consolidation under the uh, distraction of this so-called pandemic. They are building these institutions, they're giving the, them the foundations that they want them to have. And unless people are aware of what they're building, it's just going to appear in front of them at some point and uh, it'll, it'll pop up and say surprise. It'll say surprise. We've spotted a new pandemic that's coming. There's a new variant or there's a new virus or something like this. So this is biosurveillance. So they have the capability and with all of these agencies, Mike, and all of this quote genomic sequencing, which is really a lot of the data they're getting is from PCR tests, okay? So, and they're filling in the blanks by using the magic of computer software and uh, genomic sequencing. That's a whole nother rabbit hole if you want to go and do some research into the world of modern virology, which I think will shock a lot of people that uh, how unsettled the science is. And so they're relying, they're building all of this on top of all of that kind of pseudoscience which it is, a lot of it is pseudoscience because it's a lot of it is in the same genre as the computer model projections given to us by who? The world of epidemiology and Neil Ferguson. Yes. This, the same principles apply. Epidemiology riffs off of virology and vice versa. And big pharma is right there. It needs modern virology. It needs the Niels Ferguson's of the world uh, to basically fuel its industry, to fuel its global empire. And these are the people that are running our governments right now. Mm. So this is a massive power grab on one hand, and as you described, a reconsolidation of power on the government side mm -hmm. by creating these new uh, powerful agencies. Right. Uh, but uh, there was one disturbing photograph that turned up, uh, Patrick. Well, this is from the, uh, the corn pop uh, files here. Uh, this is from the G7. You can see right in full view of Boris as well. So, you know, Biden just doesn't care. So he's got his thing. And so he's here with Carrie. That's the uh, the first uh, lady of Britain there. And uh, this Joe with uh, the wandering hands and just, he's he's a really tactile guy, Mike. He's um, He doesn't mean anything by this. It's just very friendly and stuff like that. Yes. So there's Joe, there's creepy Joe creeping in there in Cornwall. Boris doesn't care. He's just having a laugh, isn't he? It's just a big lark. Uh, but anyway, just so you, everyone's clear, this is just a bit of satire. That's not an actual photograph. Um, that was basically uh, doctored uh, by our team of Photoshop experts okay. uh, at the UK column, just for a bit of a, a laugh. Um, now, just uh, on the uh, side note with respect to the G7, of course, uh, one of the issues 
that they're pushing it very hard is uh, Russia and China, but uh, Russia, first of all, and the British government very upset with what's going on in Russia with respect to NGOs and Navalny uh, and so on. Uh, this is uh, Neil Bush, who's the UK's representative of the OSCE. He was speaking yesterday uh, and he was saying the United Kingdom remains deeply concerned by the human rights situation in Russia with the recent designation of three German NGOs as undesirable uh, as undesirable organizations. And they, he went on, you know, to absolutely criticize uh, the, the situation with respect to uh, uh, Navalny himself, the fact that he's ill, uh, allegedly in prison. And I just thought to myself, you know, what did he say? The UK remains deeply concerned by reports of Mr. Navalny's ill health, but they don't care about uh, other people's ill health that might be in prison at the moment, Patrick, do they? Uh, they also complain about uh, Moscow City Court's perverse ruling they describe it of Navalny's anti-corruption foundation and political networks as extremist organizations. Uh, and uh, they're complaining about legislation signed into law on the 4th of June, which bars individuals involved in so-called extremist organizations from running for political, uh, for elected positions for a five-year period. Uh, and so they're getting very upset about the fact that their agents, uh, you know, Western agents in Russia, uh, being funded by the British Foreign Office, the UK, the US State Department, and other people like this, are getting pushback from the Russian government. Are they really surprised? You know, a lot of people in the West might be shocked to know that uh, Navalny, Alexei Navalny, is a hardcore right-wing fascist. He's known as a right-wing extremist. Has likened immigrants to cockroaches. We played those a, yeah, yeah. A video of that before on this program. So, but he's being somehow given this incredible. PR job by the Western media that have branded him as this champion of freedom and democracy. It's like the West just picked somebody at random and said, right, you're the opposition leader as far as the Western uh, media and governments are concerned. And we're going to back you. And if and you can do whatever you want, say what you want in Russia. And if you get arrested, we're going to come to your aid and say that this is a, a, a giant crime of, you know, against democracy mm -hmm. or something like this. It is just ridiculous. Uh, yep, Dominic Raab went even further. He said today's ruling that the Anti-Corruption Foundation, FBK, is an extremist organization is perverse. Uh, it's another Kafka-esque attack on those standing up against corruption and for open societies, and is a deliberate attempt to effectively outlaw genuine, pol genuine political opposition in Russia. And yet, Patrick, when we look at what those two people said, Neil Bush and, and Dominic Raab, they're criticizing Russia for doing exactly what they're doing uh, in this country, yeah. shutting down every possible opposition point of view uh, and uh, making sure that uh, people's voices cannot be heard. And, and leaving Julian Assange to uh, die in prison, yes. in a maximum security prison, he's uncharged, he is unconvicted, he's, an, he's being held as a category A prisoner uh, with no conviction mm. for indefinitely. Uh, at the behest of the United States government there. So maybe it'd be nice to have something like that in the Atlantic Charter. There's a little bit of rule of law action going on there, a little bit of sovereignty action with the uh, double standard on extradition, Mike. I mean, hey, let's apply the Atlantic, the new Atlantic Charter, let's do it. I think it is being applied. That's a perfect example of its application right there. So this is what we've got to look forward to. Now, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And also please do share any material that you find on uh, the various platforms. Uh, we're on Rumble, we're on BitChute, we're on Odyssey, uh, and uh, that would be fantastic. Um, sorry, just before we move on, Patrick, you've been running uh, a number of polls on your, uh, on your Twitter feed. Uh, that I think people should uh, pay, look out for. So that's at 21Wire if you want to find Patrick's uh, Twitter feed. Uh, but you've been running some polls with respect to airlines. Yes, we have. We've been running a series of uh, polls uh, on airlines and vaccine passports. We'll probably send the results to the sort of top six airlines to you. You can report on those uh, yes. on Monday. But uh, so far, Ryanair, EasyJet, KLM, British Airways today, go to at 21Wire. And so far, the results have been, would you fly on any of these airlines if asked to produce a vaccine passport? And right now, the yeses are averaging about 3%, the noes averaging around 97% uh, around, for all of the uh, airlines. So 97% against vaccine passports, 3 to 4% in favor of it. So that should send a loud and clear message to the airlines? Av average sample size around 5,000 votes 
per poll on that. Granted, we probably might have a slightly biased audience, full disclosure, yeah. but still, uh, it, the numbers are significant. Yes. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, papers, please, Patrick. Yes, your papers, please. This is uh, Jan's span uh, here in Germany. He's a German uh, health minister, and he's very proud. He's, he's showing the new vaccine passport uh, that the German government is pushing uh, at the moment, CovPass. Uh, it's called. He's really excited about it because he can the the, the document might can interact with the phone uh, apparently. So right. using uh, I think it was the probably QR code I would imagine. So there he is. That's uh, Jens Span. There he's very excited about this, Mike. Notice um, he's he's pushing uh, really a technology here that's being used to segregate already. Mm -hmm. It's being used to segregate people in transit, in travel situations, in entertainment, which will show you uh, in a minute here. But I thought people would be relieved to know we did some research and found that uh, he's got his own page on the World Economic Forum's of course. website here. This is the Federal Minister of Health uh, for Germany here. He's really one of the driving forces behind German Germany's lockdown policies, behind their vaccine passports now, uh, behind just general uh, COVID regulations here. And uh, he's um, known as an agenda contributor uh, for Klaus Schwab. Uh, at the World uh, Economic Forum there. So, you know, there's probably no connection there with the Great Reset policies that are really talking about uh, this kind of new world with things like dystopian technologies like vaccine passports mm. and things like that. I'm sure that Klaus uh, is not saying or sharing any of his ideas with the German uh, health minister here. But we'll just go back here and we just, we thought that we'd comment here. There is more than a striking similarity. Notice the hairline of the German minister there. Striking similarity to, well, who's that? That Herming Herming Goering there uh, at the Nuremberg trials. We just thought that it was just a passing similarity, purely making a obs observational remark here. But a lot of people are talking about this, Mike, Nuremberg too. There's a lot mm -hmm. of chatter. That hashtag is constantly trending on Twitter right now. Is it going to happen? Is there going to be a Nuremberg two? Uh, trials with regards to the absolute debacle that we've seen over the last 15 months and the fact that uh, the, the governments are colluding with corporations in order to force uh, policies that are absolutely unconstitutional and uh, against the rule of law on so many different fronts and the deregulation of ph uh, experimental pharmaceutical products. These are all grounds for uh, what a lot of people believe should be a Nuremberg II trial. You've seen a lot of this chatter, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. But it's interesting that the British government is talking about there being a public inquiry into what happened with respect to COVID over the last 14 months. Uh, but there already seems to be an inquiry ongoing because, of course, we had Dominic Cummings giving uh, evidence to select committee in the House of Commons uh, last week. Yesterday, we had uh, uh, Matt Hancock. Hancock yeah. uh, and it seems like there's an attempt here to, to already lay uh, a narrative so that for any future um, events which may take place. So um, I think it's a it's kind of a pressure release uh, activity right now on the part of the government. They want to little, let a little bit out, a little bit of steam out, but they, I don't think they want to go too deep no. into this because then, of course, they're all going to have to end up uh, uh, being held accountable and it might not actually be pleasant. So the, so the question is with the vaccine passport, Mike, you know, it, you're hearing about this more and more. Uh, I only want to fly on a vaccinated flight. Mm. We hear this. So now we have of the fully vaccinated cruise liners now launching and marketing cruises. So if you got your vaccine, you'd think that, hey, I'm, a, I'm in a vaxxed cruise, right? So everything's, right. everything should be hunky-dory. Well, check, check, check out this story here. Look at this. This is uh, two passengers test positive for COVID-19 on the first North American cruise since uh, 2020 here. You can see, I believe this is a Swiss cruise liner, Mike, here. That particular footage is taken in the Mediterranean Sea. But I thought it's worth pointing out here that they're specific on this article. We just highlight all adult passengers and crew had to show proof they were fully vaccinated. And yet they test positive for COVID-19. So it really just kind of throws the whole vaccine narrative again uh, into confusion, doesn't it? It does. And we'll have more on that in a little bit. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the latest uh, MHRA statistics for vaccine uh, adverse reactions were released yesterday. And so the uh, yellowcard.ukcolumn.org website has been updated. 
Uh, we now have, what is that, 1,286 deaths uh, attributed, or not attributed, sorry, uh, on the uh, yellow card data. But of course, the MHRA continues to say that there's no direct correlation between those and but, the vaccine itself. Between any of them? Well, they're, they're, no proof is what they're saying, that's of a, course. That's a pretty incredible institutional denial there. Uh, it certainly is. They're, they're, they're brushing all of that off. They certainly are. And uh, well, let's have a look at the graphs here uh, and we can see how, the, how this has progressed. Uh, now, of course, very, very few uh, reports are actually being received by the yellow card scheme because members of the public in general don't know about it or they don't understand the process. Uh, and certainly health uh, professionals don't seem to be uh, making the uh, reports either and in well, fact I'm and there's not going to be a big incentive Mike if they're also the ones administering the vaccines to want to go and report uh, injuries and adverse reactions no. to the patients they've been giving this uh, thing that hasn't been fully licensed right right and in fact in many cases there's a complete denial of any correlation or any uh, cause causation um, now I know of one case uh, of someone who has chest pains at the moment uh, who may well have blood clots, uh, has been to their doctor to get some uh, advice about this um, and uh, has been sent to the hospital to get advice about this. Uh, and the hospital concerned has said, well, we'll give you a scan, uh, but it'll take two weeks. So that person now who has chest pains uh, is now required to wait for two weeks for an appropriate scan. Um, well, what is going to happen in the next two weeks? Nobody knows. The response from the medical profession uh, over issues has been absolutely, and I, I should have said this was soon after having had their second dose of, I believe, AstraZeneca. So total evasion. Total evasion. So just saying, suck it up, suck it up. You know, it's not our not our problem, and don't blame the vaccines because even if you do, we're not going to believe you. That's is, right. Is that basically what they're that, saying? That seems to be what is actually happening in practice. I'm not sure what they're saying, but that seems to be what's happening in practice. So anyway, let's uh, bring uh, Tess Laurie on screen, who is uh, the uh, director of the Evidence-Based Medicine Consultancy Limited. Now, Tess Laurie has uh, uh, published many, many peer-reviewed papers, heavily cited uh, in other literature as well. Uh, and uh, is involved with the Cochrane Group. So she's qualified to make comments here. Um, she's saying the MHRA now has more than enough evidence on the yellow card system to declare uh, the COVID-19 vaccines unsafe for use in humans. Uh, preparation should be made to scale up humanitarian efforts to assist those harmed by the COVID-19 vaccines and to anticipate and ameliorate medium to longer term effects. Uh, and she said, as the mechanism for harms from the vaccines appears to be similar to COVID-19 itself, this includes engaging with numerous international doctors and scientists with expertise in successfully treating COVID-19. Now, that statement there is very interesting because, of course, what is one of the primary mechanisms for harm where harm is caused by COVID-19 at all? In other words, in people that are uh, less capable of dealing with it. Uh, it's being caused mainly by a spike protein. And then, of course, the vaccine manufacturers chose to make the spike protein the mechanism for generating an immune response. So, that, so you're, in fact, injecting the active component uh, in the illness into people. Um, so this the toxic component. Yes, exactly. The toxic component. Uh, and, and that is migrating from the injection site to other parts of the body, causing blood clots and other problems. Um, and so uh, this uh, seems to... Because your own immune, natural immune system, Mike, could never possibly be relied on to mount an immune response to anything, right? You need, only a vaccine could possibly protect you, right? A healthy immune system, yeah, no. Hmm. Good T-cell response, no. maybe, maybe not. Uh, probably according to our health officials, no. Your natural immune system will never work. Uh, to mount a proper defense against the dreaded COVID-19. You must. You must be, be vaccinated. You must be vaccinated. Yes. Everybody from the old right down to the infants, everybody's got to get the jab. Otherwise, it's just going to be out of control. Yes. That's the official line. That's that not our line. That is the official line. It's not our line. Indeed. It's the official line. Um, so anyway, if you have a look at the website for the evidence-based for evidence -based medicine consultancy limited, uh, you will find this open letter to June Rain. Uh, I suggest everybody 
rated. So let's bring uh, June Rain on screen, who of course is the chief executive of the MHRA, who is supposedly responsible for, men for regulating the safety of all medicines, including COVID-19 vaccines. Now, if you remember uh, a week or so ago, uh, I can't remember exactly when we were highlighting this, uh, we have carefully reviewed clinical trial data in children aged 12 to 15 years uh, and have concluded that Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective in this age group. Now, she said this personally. This, this isn't uh, a general quote from her organization. She said this personally. We have carefully reviewed the clinical trial data. Uh, and she went on to say the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risk. How can she possibly make this statement? We've made this point already. Uh, since there is no risk uh, in children, uh, then how can the benefits... No risk of COVID. Yes. yes. How can the benefits outweigh the risk? But anyway, she made a statement. She's predicting. It's a predictive statement. Well, uh, it's, her, it's her opinion, uh, how if she thinks it might turn out in six months or a year. She's right? certainly not providing any evidence for the statement. Uh, she went on to say in the statement, we have in place a comprehensive safety surveillance strategy for monitoring the safety of all UK-approved COVID-19 vaccines. And this surveillance will include the 12 to 15 year age group. And of course, that, of course, is after the fact. So you can you can monitor all you like after the injections have been delivered. And then you can say, oh, dear, maybe. But there's the, <laughs> the question is whether they should be delivered in the first place. And she went on to say it would be for the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, to advise on whether this age group should be uh, should be uh, vaccinated as part of the deployment program. But here's the problem, Patrick. Um, the, sorry. No, just saying that, I mean, so basically what she's saying is, you know, skip the long-term safety trials, skip all the animal trials, skip the long-term observations. Uh, let's just go straight to distributing it, flood the public with this product, and then we'll, we'll do some surveillance and we'll see what happens. That's right, but, but right. remember the first statement. The first statement was that they've analyzed the data, they've analyzed the reports, and they are convinced that it's safe. The minuscule Pfizer uh, uh, corporate trials, right? Right. No, no, no. Well, no. Well, yes, indeed, yes. But, but here's the thing. Here is a CDC presentation, um, and this was delivered a day or two ago, uh, and it's basically saying that a higher than expected number of young men, adolescent men, have been experiencing heart inflammation after the second dose of one of the mRNA. Uh, Shots. Okay, so let's myocarditis. Let's have a look at uh, this. Is the the front uh, slide from the uh, from the the presentation? Uh, they give an overview of VSAFE monitoring of Pfizer BioNTech COVID nineteen vaccine for younger adolescents on May eleventh to twenty twenty one. VSAFE age le limits expanded to allow registration down to twelve years of age at dose one, as of May thirty first. Uh, 46,533 persons aged 12 to 15 years were registered and submitted at least one health check during the day during days zero to seven after dose one and so on. So that's the sort of scale of the thing that we're talking about. Uh, and uh, well, what they discovered was preliminary myocarditis and pericarditis, uh, and they were finding uh, what they describe as higher than expected levels. So they're saying that they're saying that there were 283 cases of heart inflammation after the second vaccine dose in those aged 16 to 24 in the VERS data, and that compares with expectations of 10 to 100 cases in that age range based on U.S. population background incidence rates. So it's it's more than double, nearly three times the level of what they expected in what they describe as background incidence rates, uh, and yet the MHRA says that they have assessed the, the available data uh, and they have found these vaccines to be absolutely safe for children aged 12 to 16 and 16 to 24. I'm surprised so, they're not blaming it on the free Krispy Kreme donuts that you get with your vaccines. Uh, that would probably be more scientific. What do you think? It is the regulator we're talking about, This right? is supposedly the regulator that we're talking I about. I think yes. they need to change your job title from CEO to Chief Matador. Uh, because they're not doing a whole lot of regulation, uh, as far as we can see. Okay, so it it goes on. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, uh, highlighted a freedom of information question to the MHRA, and the answer that came back was we basically didn't read the clinical trial. So this was the uh, uh, the freedom of information uh, request. It's on what do they know? It's called Pfizer slash BioNTech 
COVID-19 vaccine exposure during pregnancy. Um, and uh, they were asked uh, in the clinical trial protocol for the Pfizer-BioNTech study in the short title, a phase one, two, three study to evaluate the safety, tolerability, sorry, immunogenicity and efficacy of uh, RNA vaccine candidates against COVID-19 in healthy individuals. Uh, they went on to give some statistics about that and to ask some questions to clarify what it understands the above protocol to mean where it states exposed to the study intervention by inhalation or skin contact in relation to one above, whether you understand this to mean uh, that there's potential for the vaccine active ingredients or uh, excipients or any protein or other material produced as a direct result of the active ingredients, i.e. spike protein to be released either orally or through any form of excretion from the recipient, i.e. shedding, and what you determine the potential effect of to any person, whether pregnant or not, resulting from exposure to anything referred to in your answer to above. Those were the kinds of questions that were asked and the answer that came back was, as the above trial was not conducted in the UK, the MHRA did not assess its contents and are therefore not in a position to answer specific questions relating to it. And the question we asked was, how is it possible that uh, even an emergency uh, approval could be given to any drug where uh, the drug trial was not conducted, uh, you know, even though it was not conducted in the UK, uh, was not assessed by the regulator uh, for its effic efficacy uh, and or safety. Uh, uh, or safety, and therefore they can't answer specific questions relating to it. How, how did they reach their conclusions, therefore? But it seems it's not just in the UK that this situation exists. Well, it's not, and uh, we'll be pleased, to, and well, not pleased really, but to report on this as well. This is from Doctors for COVID Ethics here, and they're highlighting a similar freedom of information request, Mike, with the Australian drugs, drugs regulator here, a Freudian slip there. Uh, approved by Pfizer vaccine uh, confirms that they have never seen this study in the data. Pfizer vaccine authorized, data site unseen. And just to give you some details on that, you can uh, say that this was a freedom of information request here. And they asked three specific questions, Mike. One was, uh, did the TGA, that's the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration, did they, did they request the raw data from Pfizer? Question number one. Question number two, did any of the committees approving the vaccine look at the raw data and discuss it? That's the second question. Third question, what were, this, what were these, quote, studies uh, referred to uh, in the approval document relating to uh, terotogenicity, which is risk of harm to the fetus? Right. Okay, so three key questions. And the answer that came back might shock some people uh, here. And so it is that... Um, uh, what they show is that the TGA never saw or requested the patient data from Pfizer and simply accepted Pfizer's reporting of their studies mm -hmm. as true. So they never, it's black box, basically. The corporate black box run by Pfizer, run by all these vaccine manufacturers. They're, the governments are not looking at it. They're not really investigating. Mike, the regulators are not doing Regular. any regulation mm -hmm. on this. The level of corruption here institutional corruption, the capture of regulatory agencies, of whole government departments by private interests is just unbelievable. Whether that private interest is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, or the pharmaceutical industry itself. This is what has happened. Here's just another bit of proof of this, what we think is the real epidemic, Mike, which is just rampant, rampant corruption. Uh, with regards to the pharmaceutical industry and their relationship with our elected officials. Yes, indeed. Okay, uh, Ireland then. Well, uh, there's this thing called testing, Mike, uh, concert testing. Uh, there's a term for it. We'll show you in a minute here. This is Catherine Martin uh, here. She's a tourism minister from uh, the Republic of Ireland. This is what she tweeted out here, Mike. Uh, it's me and my friends hashtag here, Catherine Martin's retweet. This is an event at uh, Ivy Gardens uh, in Dublin. Uh, this is a, a park where they're holding this, uh, music events here. Oh, so just like the G7, they've got markings on the ground. Well, yeah, let's take a closer look at that. Blow that up there. And so this is a socially distanced uh, music event. So they're saying we're open again for entertainment, but with caveats here. So she's very excited about this safe event uh, that has happened uh, here. Let's just take a look. So you can see there's a little camera shot there that's what it sort of looks like 
uh, from that angle here. And again, just a great show tonight. Uh, thanks to everyone who made it such a safe summer celebration. So everyone's, no one's wearing masks, but they're kind of roped, they're all roped off into their little patches and that makes them safe, uh, apparently here. Let's just take a look at the footage here. Uh, and so Sorcha Richardson, I think this is the artist uh, who is playing here. Look at, they're all socially distanced there. You can see it's a lot, you know, really exciting. There's the bass player bopping around. And uh, I think we get a shot of the mosh pit. Here's the mosh pit, Mike. There, you can see a lot of activity going on. I've seen more action at a House Martins concert, quite frankly. But so this is the socially distanced dystopia uh, of uh, what we're calling these test uh, music test events, or safe testing for public entertainment and things like this. I mean, this is, can be no fun for anybody. There's no atmosphere there at all. No, not only that, it's restricting, they're calling it sellout crowds. So they're restricting the number of tickets uh -huh. uh, and saying that it's sold to capacity, mm -hmm. quote capacity, but they've reduced the capacity. And I think also this means the prices are going to go up as well. So there can be no other way because uh, there's no possibility of anybody uh, actually making a you know, making any kind of return on their on their efforts oh, when there's only 20% of their normal audience or 5% oh, of their normal but audience. But don't worry about that, Mike, because there's a whole tranche of funding now uh -huh. uh, from the Irish government to subsidize the relaunch of music events. And guess which events are going to get the funding for subsidizing artists and production and PA systems, security and all this, those that are COVID safe. Uh -huh. So you can have the all the music you want. You can have a festival as long as it's falls under COVID regulations and you'll get right. funding from the state. So it's a bit like the Art Council having uh, sway over the, pol the politics of certain art and public art, which we see as a problem yeah. in some countries, right? Yeah. Even the UK, this yeah. is an issue. Yeah, yeah. So this is the same sort of thing. So this, there, there is a political string attached now again to live music, to festivals. And this is what we're seeing here. So let's look at what some of the other artists are saying here. This is uh, Owen Murphy here. He is a a singer and a guitarist uh, for the Buchels. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly there. He's talking about the live music trials. He's just showing this picture here on Twitter, Mike. There's Dublin, there's an aerial shot of what we just showed you. And down there is Barcelona. So you can see the Spanish are taking a slightly different approach here. And so he's making the argument, he wants antigen testing here. So he said, this is what we all have to look forward to for the foreseeable future, thanks to the Chief Medical Officer of Ireland uh, this is a different gentleman he's talking about here, his refusal to accept the evidence supporting antigen testing. I think this is opposed to PCR testing, right? Or is it a different type of a test, I guess. So this is the argument, one of the arguments being made out here. And so again, they're, they're saying, you know, this is potential chaos yeah. uh, here. Yeah. So where does this lead, Mike? How, how bad could this possibly get? We'll take a look at, this is how bad it's going to get. This is in New York. Bruce Springsteen, the Foo Fighters, the Strokes, uh, are having the first vaccinated concerts now. So you have to be vaccinated uh, in order to attend this event here. The band, uh, newly inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in May, will perform to a fully vaccinated audience, says NPR, on June 20th. The first full capacity, there's that word, full uh -huh. capacity show uh, at the storied arena. I think they're talking about Madison Square Garden the historic uh, venue in New York City there. So you have to be fully vaccinated to go see Dave Grohl uh, and the Foo Fighters and Bruce Springsteen and, and the Strokes as well, Mike. So let's just take a look at that again. There's the boss. There's the boss, Bruce Springsteen there. And so what are these guys really, if they're standing around and they think this is okay to have vaccine segregation? They're effectively endorsing mm -hmm. vaccine segregation. So you have to have an experimental unlicensed uh, injection with a gene-based injection in order to see the uh, rock idols, right? So what is this? What are they? Are they not tools of big pharma? A lot of people will say this is the ultimate sellout by all of these uh, so-called rock idols. Mm. And so I, I think, Mike, that there's going to be potential blowback in the rock and roll sector uh, for a lot of these people. A lot of these people don't care. They'll line up and get vaccinated. They think it's great to have vaccinated only concerts, cruises, flights, uh, you name it, restaurants, bars, nightclubs, vax only, separate the vax from the unvax. This is actual segregation. Yes. And this is basically coercion by the state, by agencies, by 
corporations. In New York, it's by the state because they have a vaccine passport system called the Excelsior Pass system, which was put into place by Governor Cuomo, totally unconstitutional. There's no science backing to it at all, as we know, because vaccines don't stop, according to the manufacturers, transmission uh, or, quote, infection, do they? So uh, there's really no scientific basis to the whole thing. It's just unbelievable. So then the question is, uh, we're seeing all this stuff, lockdowns around the world to some degree or other. What's going to happen in the UK? Well, of course, Monday was supposed to be Freedom Day. Uh, that was the day we were supposed to be uh, uh, getting out of uh, Monday, sorry, June the 21st, that is. The VC Day, wasn't it? Victory over COVID, right? Yes, right. Uh, the question is, will we have to wait? Well, the BBC certainly thinks that we do, we will. And they have had this headline, why, uh, why we may have to wait uh, longer for Freedom Day. Um, so, uh, uh, but the prospect of, of Freedom Day happening is now looking increasingly unlikely following the rise of the Delta variant. Uh, this, of course, is the variant formerly known as Indian variant. That's the politically correct rebranding of the Indian variant, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, behind the scenes, government scientists have been warning ministers this week that caution is needed. Um, so why do we appear to be stumbling at the final hurdle? Well, they produced a nice graph to show us why. Here we go. Uh, because uh, that's what's been going on, apparently. Uh, they say that if, if we uh, continue that trend, uh, we'll be on track for a big wave of infections. Uh, and of course, what they actually mean is a big wave of positive PCR tests. Yeah, and, and, and cheap Chinese, uh, imported Chinese lateral flow tests. As uh, well. At the current rate of growth, the UK will hit 15,000 cases a day by the 21st of June uh, and January levels of infection by late July. And that's without the further relaxation of the restrictions due, which could drive up cases even more. So another case-demic. A case-demic so is on its way. Who is gullible but, to fall for this gag for the fourth time? But there's a problem, Patrick. There's a problem with their narrative. There's a problem with their narrative because guess what? The link between infections and hospitalizations has been weakened. Oh. And so this is a problem. Uh, what is less clear, the article says, however, is what this means for hospital cases. It is often said that vaccination has broken the link between infections and hospitalizations. And if people are not getting seriously sick, then does it matter if infections uh, infection levels rise? But at this stage, it appears to have weakened it rather than broken it. So what's that, an admission that vaccination didn't work? Well, we could have a discussion about that. Uh, admissions have already started rising, albeit not as fast as they did in September. Uh, the last time infections were rising at this rate. Uh, the rate of hospitalizations appears to be less than half of what it was then. Uh, though there are only a few days of data to draw on. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the, uh, people are asking ministers for more time to monitor the data. So what's going on there is they're foreshadowing for a zero COVID yes. uh, policy. They're, set, they're setting up the narrative. So again, hedging, rewriting, repositioning the narrative uh, in order to prepare for, oh, actually, we need to go for a zero COVID uh, policy. We need 100% vaccinations to do the, the kind of crazed Australian approach uh, to the sort of the, the, the pandemic that never ends, basically. That's absolutely, that's absolutely right. And what's uh, quite amusing, perhaps for some, is that uh, even some previous prime ministers are criticizing this zero COVID policy, it seems. I was shocked to hear about this. So Theresa May was trending on Twitter yesterday, and I had to look at why that was. And uh, well, she made a statement in the House of Commons. Um, so let's just have a listen to what she had to say. One year on, we are no further forward. Indeed, what we have is a devastated industry, jobs lost and global Britain shut for business. More than not being any further forward, we've gone backwards. Uh, we now have over 50% of the adult population vaccinated, a wonderful programme, um, yet we're more restricted on travel than we were last year. Last year in 2020, I went to Switzerland in August, South Korea in September, there was no vaccine, travel was possible. This year there is a vaccine, travel is not possible. Uh, I really don't understand this, the stance the government is taking. Of course, it is permissible to travel to countries on the amber list, provided you are, it's practicable for you to quarantine when you come back. But government ministers tell people that they mustn't travel. They can't go on holiday to places on the amber list. The messaging is mixed and the system chaotic. Portugal was put on the green list, people went to the football, then Portugal was put on the amber list, leaving holidaymakers scrabbling for fights, flights and devastated families having to cancel their plans not to mention the impact on the airlines, on travel agents here, and on the travel industry, the tourist industry, in our longest standing trading partner in Europe. Business travel is practically impossible. 
Global Britain has shut its doors to business and investors. In the normal year pre-pandemic, uh, passengers through Heathrow spent £16 billion across our country, including at places like Legoland Windsor, which is partly in my constituency. That has been lost. I think there are some facts that the government needs to be upfront with, with the British people, and that ministers need to think a bit more of when they're making these decisions. First, we will not eradicate COVID-19 from the UK. There will not be a time when we can say that there will never be another case of COVID-19 in this country. Secondly, variants will keep on coming. There will be new variants every year. If the government's position is that we cannot open up travel until there are no new variants elsewhere in the world, then we will never be able to travel abroad ever again. And the third fact that the government needs to state much more clearly is that, sadly, people will die from COVID here in the UK in the future, as 10 to 20,000 people do every year from flu. And we are falling behind the rest of Europe in our decisions to open up, as my right honourable friend, the member for Orchingham and Sale West, has indicated. The government may say all it has, as the minister has, about the importance of the aviation industry, but it needs to decide whether it wants an airline industry and aviation sector in the UK or not, because at the rates it's going, it won't have one, certainly not as a key sector in, our, in the economy as it was pre-pandemic. It's incomprehensible, I think, that one of the most heavily vaccinated countries in the world is one that is most reluctant to give its citizens the freedoms those vaccinations should support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was her position yesterday. Now, of course, Theresa May saying there, I don't really understand what's going on. Well, I don't believe that for one second. Theresa May uh, was a prime minister for a couple of years. She pushed through uh, things like the censorship. She began the whole censorship uh, uh, program that, that we're seeing running at the moment. She pushed through the uh, rapid response mechanism, which is all about a common narrative, global, uh, at least among all the G7 countries. She got them all to sign up to it. She has clearly got a, a, an idea of international internationalism, uh, globalism, the Great Reset, she gets it. Um, so for her to say she doesn't understand why the British government appears to be knocking down the uh, British aviation industry and the British tourism industry. Uh, the, so I'm not clear exactly what that little speech was about. I think many of the points were, were worth listening to and worth understanding uh, and uh, worth echoing back to her perhaps and asking her some questions because they were good points, but she cannot possibly not understand why the government is taking the positions that it's taking. Perhaps, perhaps. But, you know, we've been critical of Theresa May in the past, Mike, uh, and I, I will say that she said more and I think accomplished more, uh, if there's anything that comes out of that statement that she made. She, she said more in two minutes there uh, that is in service of... Uh, all that is uh, right and good uh, in terms of the rule of law, in terms of the constitution, in terms of uh, what the people's interests are. She did more in two minutes than she did in two years as prime minister there. So and we do applaud that statement. And we would we would hope, and we're, we're gonna ask Mike, where are the, where why aren't the uh, Tory rebels uh, making such statements as well? What happened to them? Well, I, I didn't watch the debate yesterday, yeah. so I don't know who else spoke and I haven't seen any other reports, but uh, but I mean, that's a good question. The, yeah. Certainly, Charles Walker's name wasn't uh, trending on Twitter yesterday or Steve Baker's, for example. So we need more. We need more like uh, following Theresa May's open the door there and hopefully she's opened it enough that more people are going to be able to, to come through and, yes. and start putting some real pressure on... Uh, what is going on with the government? What are they trying to engineer here over the last 15 months? What are they really trying to engineer? Yes. Okay, well, look, that's all we've got for you today, except for one thing, uh, which is our comp caption competition. So we're going to ask everybody to, uh, to send us their suggestions over the weekend, and we'll put the best on the program on Monday. Uh, but this is uh, the final photograph from the G7. Uh, it's Boris pointing at uh, Joe Biden, and Joe Biden holding his... Uh, hands out, as you can see. Uh, and uh, well, I'm just going to give my uh, effort here. Uh, well, actually, it was Patrick's idea. Um, it was not. Uh, and uh, uh, Joe saying it's this big. Um, so that's uh, that's my entry into the caption competition. I, I would like every uh, entries from everybody, please, uh, as many as possible, and we'll put the best ones on the program on Monday. And this is in relation to Joe's old mobile phone that they're talking about. Is that right? It's yes. Joe's talking about his old mobile phone, basically. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, there you go. I'm glad to know that, that. Th that picture of the beach, Mike, that's that is actually what the beach looks like. 
Uh, but they had to turf all the people off it, obviously, for this week because of the G7, just like they turfed the homeless out of Cornwall and turfed pretty much neighbors out of their own neighborhoods and so forth. Well, well, that's true, but you'll notice they're not allowed on the beach because they've got a glass, uh, they're sitting against a, bla a glass wall there. They can't, uh, they can't actually step out onto the beach. Coroni's on the beach. That's right. And, uh, and so uh, Joe can't go out onto the beach. That's right. This is a totally COVID-safe international meeting, and they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that it is. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, we will leave it there for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.